I have a couple of passages of scripture that I want to read for us uh, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, both of these are in chapter 43. First passage is verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And then beginning in verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me and jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you've been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to our hearts. We thank you for its penetrating power and the things uh, that we read on pages and hear in our ears uh, speak so much more deeply to our minds and our hearts. We pray that um, as Ryan comes, you would um, increase that voice, help us to hear clearly what you have for us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Emmanuel, God is with us. You know, I just don't think we can celebrate that enough. We can't declare that enough this morning. We're looking at part of Emmanuel today. The, the, the theme is exhaustive in the Scriptures. We, we, there's no way we could exhaust every, every opportunity to do that, but it's all over the Scriptures. This week, in the midst of our family time at home, we had an opportunity a couple times to catch up in ways that we don't typically get to by watching extra Christmas movies. You know what I'm talking about? So my kids were introduced to one of my favorites, which is Home Alone 2. And I'm thinking about what I'm preaching on this weekend, and all of a sudden it hits me. Kevin is dealing with exactly the same thing that we are dealing with. Kevin is the kid in the movie, okay? So if you, if you haven't been able to partake in this beautiful film, the, the, picture it like this. The morning is absolutely chaotic. The family, 14 of them in all, are getting ready to go on their annual Christmas pilgrimage vacation. This time they're going to Florida. Except they, they miss their alarm. Something happens and they are in a scramble to get to the airport so they don't miss their flight. Kevin is the youngest and in the airport he looks down for a second, looks up and all of a sudden he doesn't see things the way that he thought he would see them. But he sees in the distance this guy that looks like his dad and so he says I'll just follow him. And so he ends up following uh, what he thought to be his dad onto an airplane. The only issue was this. It wasn't the airplane that his family was on. 
His family's going down south to, to Miami. He ends up going to the Big Apple, to New York City. Now, now, the funny thing is this, is that Kevin's like, my family's getting on my nerves. It's a big family. It's hard to, to be myself. I need some time alone. I just wish I could go on vacation by myself, away from all of these crazies. And so he ends up actually getting what he wants. Now, he loves it the first few days, blowing up his dad's credit card, spending all the cash, eating like $900 of room service in the 90s, which is a lot of food. But then a few days set in, and then he realizes something that you and I will all realize in our lives if we haven't. When we get what we want, we realize we don't actually like what we get. You know what I'm talking about? When we get what we want, we realize we don't actually like what we get. And the theme for us is this, is that we want to live independently of God. We may not say that with our words, but we live that with our lives from the moment that we're born. We don't like his laws. We don't like his ways. We want to go our own way. And we like it until we have to start suffering the consequences of what we have secretly wished for. Now, now here's the question. When we as God's people find ourselves getting what we want, which was not really what we wanted to to happen to our lives. We just wanted to enjoy the pleasures of getting what we want, not the consequences. When we get to that place, what's our next move? I mean, will we admit it? Will we confess it? Will we repent? Will we finally see we are hopelessly lost without God? We are hopelessly lost without Jesus. When we get to that place where we get what we want, we're busted, caught in our sin, unsatisfied with our worldly pursuits, what's our next move? Do we push ourselves deeper into it? Or do we pause and repent and turn to the one who can make all things new in us? Now, get this. The only way that Christmas will have any significant eternal impact in your life and in my life, and in your neighbor's life, and in the lives of all those that inhabit this earth, is if we get this fact, that we are hopelessly lost without Jesus. That we're hopelessly lost without Him. We may think and talk about a lot of things during this season, depending on your cultural background, but if we don't highlight, emphasize, and spotlight the fact that we are hopelessly lost without Jesus, we could miss the whole thing. Big idea this morning, guys, is this. Jesus has come for a hopelessly lost people. Can you say that with me? Jesus. That was pretty good. Sorry, I didn't give you the cadence there, but uh, yeah, Jesus has come for a hopelessly lost people. So We've spent the last six weeks, church, going through the book of Ruth. Now, it started out, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a time of turmoil uh, in the life of God's people of Israel, but it led to the fact that, that the, the line of David would come from this chaotic and sinful family, that, that David would come. Now, we pick up today in Isaiah 43, if I can give you a brief context of Isaiah and what he's writing about. We pick up about three years after King David's reign. Now, At this point, King David in Israel's history uh, was the last clear evidence of God's presence with his people. The blessing that the people received by having a king, not a perfect king, but a good king like David, would have been like the last clear evidence of God's presence with his people, Emmanuel with his people. It'd be like us 
thinking about our lives and, and thinking back about a, a time in life that we really would like to go back to, remembering the good old days. Imagine that on repeat, repeat over and over and over again. Well, it's not like the, the days of David. That's what it would have been like during this time. Now, Israel at this time, 300 years after David's reign, was in a season of getting what they want. They were in a season of ending up in New York City without your family and wishing you hadn't got what you want. They were in that season for hundreds and hundreds of years, getting what they wanted. And you can probably relate to this season of their story somewhere in your life where you got what you wanted and you realized you didn't ever want it. They were always looking back at those good old days. And, and so at this time, here's what happened. There were the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, and they had uh, divided the kingdom. There were 10 tribes to the north and, and two tribes to the south. Uh, the, the, the tribes in the south were, were Judah and Benjamin. Now what had happened to the 10 tribes in the north is that they had just been destroyed, just wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, by the Assyrian Empire. And they left Judah, the southern kingdom, in this really vulnerable position. Now, uh, Judah had to pay this large fee uh, to the Assyrian government, to the Assyrian Empire, uh, to be, basically be a country within a country. But they couldn't really do everything that they wanted to do. That's called a, like a, a vassal. They're, they're under the authority of Assyria, trying to operate uh, as Judah's the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was. But, but they had one of the agreements that they came to is that they, they had to worship idols and they had to pay this large sum of money to the Assyrian government. And there were lots of bad kings in, in Judah. Uh, it's history in the southern, in the southern uh, kingdom. But there was this one king that comes along, King Hezekiah, a king that actually had a backbone and wanted to uh, stand up to what was happening, to the injustice that was happening, to the idol worship that was happening. Now, the, uh, Isaiah writes during the, the time that Hezekiah uh, is, is the king. Now, they were tired of getting what they wanted, and the, the king of Israel, uh, uh, the king of uh, uh, Assyria at this time, didn't, didn't really like the fact that, that Hezekiah led the people to stop paying the money and to stop worshiping the idols. They stood up, and so what he did was he says, you know what, we're going to come in and we're going to take them out. And that's exactly what they did to some degree. They didn't wipe them off the face of the earth, but they destroyed the one clear evidence of God's presence with his people. Do you know what that was? The temple. The Holy of Holies. Emmanuel, God with them at this time in the temple, they destroyed it. And so at this time, the people of Judah were bewildered and confused about where their God was. They were hopelessly lost without a Savior. Enter Isaiah, prophet of the Most High God. Now he would write concerning and describing the character of God and his nature of grace that would be revealed. He wrote before Jesus. Now we're looking at this from a different context. We're looking back at the one that he would write about. Back at the Messiah that would come. Back at Emmanuel. But we still glean a lot of the same themes from this text that we're looking at today. So I want to make three points about Isaiah 43 today. Let me tell you what they are, and then we'll go through them together. First one is this. Jesus comes looking for us when we are not looking for him. Second one is this. Jesus extends grace through the reservoir of the Father's love. Third thing is this. We extend grace to the world through the worship of Jesus. 
Let's dig in together. Jesus comes looking for us when we're not looking for him. If you've got a Bible, I want you to flip open to Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to be looking at verses 18 uh, through 21 here. Now here's the message in Isaiah 43. It's basically this. Even though you are not with me, I am for you. Even though you're not with me, even though you could care less about with me, I am for you is the message that God gives. Let's hear it. Let's read it again here. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, Israel. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, I will give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people, listen to this, whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. What's he, what's he saying here? He's talking about how interested he is in mine and your worship of Jesus, of the Savior, of God. There's, if there's one thing, church, that you were tailor-made for, it's not your job, it's not your family, it's to worship Jesus. That's what you were made for, he says. You may be sure of a lot of things, but one thing that I'm sure of above everything else is that you were made to worship Jesus with your life. Now, none of us do that to the degree that we want to. Some of us don't do it at all. You were made to worship Jesus. And things in our lives are not in the right place if that's not where our heart is headed to. Now, sometimes we feel that disconnect more than others, right? In different areas of our life, whether it be our relationships or our money, when we're not worshiping Jesus and those things aren't following it, we feel the consequence, we feel the fallout of the pain that happens when we go our own way. You were made to worship Jesus. Now, now the other question in here is a question that we could probably spend the rest of the morning on. We're not going to. We're going to get in a little bit, but it's this. Do I perceive God's presence around me this morning? He says to Israel, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you, do you even have eyes to see or a mind to comprehend the fact that I might be able to do something that you couldn't create on your own? That I could do a new thing among you. I could come to you in a new way. I could save you in a way that you don't expect to be saved. That I have that type of power. Do you perceive the fact that God's presence is around and even in us this morning? Am I aware of the new thing that he's doing in history? Am I aware of the new thing that he's doing in this country, in this city, in this world, in my family? Am I aware? Do I have eyes to see and ears to hear the new thing that he's doing? Now, we are not often perceptive of the presence of God in our lives because we are not looking for him the way that he should be sought. I love what um, Bruce Marshall wrote in a book in 1945. He, he has this zinger in there that, that other people have quoted, like G.K. Chesterton quoted him on this. And he says this, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel, <laughs> okay, pastor, is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Now, you would hear this, and we're, we're reading it out of context a bit. Let me fill in a bit. What he's saying is this, is that this seems to be a guy that is not looking for God. But ultimately, in his deepest desire, he is looking for something that only God can satisfy in him. Now, 
we squirm and we run in lots of ways when we're looking for God. We chase lots of different things. It doesn't matter how far you've run and what direction you've ran in. You're looking for God. If we believe this type of reasoning, and I think that it's true. So the young man that fills his life with pleasure, the young woman who fills her life with a desire to appear a certain way, the old man who fills his life with money, the older woman who fills her life with experiences is looking for God. No matter how we are looking, no matter how our neighbor or our brother or our friend or our family members are behaving, they are looking for God, but we are rarely aware of him. Here's why the subject of Emmanuel, meaning God with us, is so difficult for us. In our hearts, it's like there's this irreconcilable tension in us. On the one hand, we don't live the way that we desire to live before God. I've never met someone that says, man, I'm just so proud of my obedience. Maybe they exist. But deep down, we're, we, we're insecure in our own effort. All of us are. So on the one hand, we don't live the life that we desire to live. Nothing's ever enough. We're never satisfied. We're, we're hard on ourselves and we punish ourselves when we don't live up to the standard that we create for ourselves. And so we, we stiff arm God. We say, you can't be with us, God. You can't be with us. I'm too sinful for your presence to be in my life. And the other side of this tension is this. God doesn't show up in the ways that we expect him to. And we can't see his hand when the story has an alternate ending than the one that we anticipated. You know what I'm talking about? Am I speaking your language this morning? We have a hard time with this concept of God being with us because we don't live up to the standard and God shows up in ways that we don't expect him to. But Jesus comes and he does something beautiful. He shows us that we don't have to live up to the standard, that he lives up to the standard for us. And then we can trust in his providence. We can trust in his sovereignty and his plan. And the fact that he shows up in the places we need him to show up into, even though they're not the places we want him to show up in. Are you aware of the new thing that God is doing in our midst? It's like a stream in the desert, something that doesn't belong there. He's making a way where there was no way before. And what we find is when we go our own way, there actually is no way. The question is, how long will it take us to admit and confess and repent of the fact that we're at a dead end? And whatever the pursuit is for us. The fact that Jesus says a couple of, of, of things in the New Testament blow my mind. One is this, at the end of the Great Commission where he's just sent us out in the world to establish his kingdom and he's given us authority and power to do so by the Holy Spirit. He says, oh, by the way, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When it gets dark and you're not sure if I'm going to show up, I'm with you. In Hebrews 13, 5, the, the writer would write about Jesus' presence like this. I will never leave you or forsake you. I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, those messages aren't the loudest messages that I hear when I think about God being with me. It feels like I've been forsaken. It feels like I've been left. It feels like we have. So my question is this. Will you admit it this morning? 
Will you confess with your heart, when even say it, Jesus, I'm hopelessly lost without you. Not my neighbor, not that guy that's really blown it, not the guy that tried to rob me this week. That really happened, by the way. It's not just him. It's me. I'm hopelessly lost without you, Jesus. I want to invite you to even pray that as we're listening to God's word today. And hitch yourself to the endless grace and love of Jesus. Second thing is this, church. We said that Jesus comes looking for us when we're not looking for him. The second thing, Jesus extends grace through the reservoir of the Father's heart. Through his heart. So Isaiah 43, 22 through 26 goes on to say this. You didn't call upon me, O Jacob, Israel. You didn't call upon me, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. He's calling them by their middle name now, you know what I mean? You have, brought, you have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. And I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with, with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. But I, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. So what is God doing here? He charges them and says, listen, I know that the temple is destroyed. Don't act like you can't worship because there's no temple. Don't, don't blame it on the temple, the fact that the king of Assyria had the temple destroyed. You weren't worshiping me the way that you should be, even when the temple was there. So don't blame it on the circumstances. Oh, and by the way, the way that you've lived, you've, you've been stingy with your worshiping. You've been stingy with your sacrifices for me. You've been stingy with your giving toward me, which in fact reveals your heart for God, your worship of Jesus. But you haven't been stingy with your sin, Israel. No, no, no. You've gone full-blown into that. Regardless of if you're in exile or not, you've not been stingy with your sin, but, but here's the deal. Here's the truth, church, is that I'm so thankful that this passage does not stop there. Amen? I am so thankful that he doesn't just reprimand us and leave us there to go on with our, with our tail between our legs, wondering if we could ever have a relationship with God. Because he doesn't stop there, even his rebuke of Israel. Even in his rebuke of my life and your life, in, in the face of our sin before a holy God, he lets us see it, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop. No, he goes on to say this. Even though you've burdened me with your sins and you've wearied me with your iniquities, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. I will not remember your sin. Do you remember your sin? Of course you do. When we come to our Father in heaven, and we desperately seek, as hopelessly lost people, the face of Jesus Christ, he doesn't remember our sins. Did you hear that? We live our entire life trying to cover up our pain and our sin 
We live trying to conceal something that God cannot remember if we come to him. We're playing the wrong game when we try to manage sin. That's what he's saying. That's not the end game. Your slate is clean when you follow Jesus. If we remember him, he forgets our sin. It's this great exchange that we get through what Jesus has done. Now, why does God do that? Where does the power come from for him to do that? He says it's for his own sake, his own character. We, we get to live forgiven lives because of him, not anything we have done or not done. It's not about us. We can get our eyes off ourselves. It's about him. Listen to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 4. He starts out by saying this. By now, thus says the Lord, he who created you. Oh, by the way, he says, let me just remind you, I made you. O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now, why would he say fear not? Because the way they're living, they should be afraid of his wrath. They should be afraid of his judgment. They should be afraid of his presence. Emmanuel should be bad news to their lives because of the way that they've lived, because of the way that you've lived, because of the way that I live. Emmanuel should not be good news to us. But because of his character, because of who he is and what he's come to do and the depth of his love that has been existent for all eternity, he acts differently. He says, fear not, I've redeemed you. You don't have to run from me. Emmanuel doesn't mean a a giant game of hide and go seek. No, it means that we can come near to him in our time of need. That he knows everything about us. And he still moves toward us. He says, I've called you by name, you are mine. Do you hear the possessive language of his response to a sinful people? That is the same type of possessive language that Jesus declares to his disciples over and over and over again. And why? Why has he called us? Why do we belong to him? Why is he doing everything that he's doing for us? Because we're precious in his eyes and honored. And then he gets so intimate and he says, I love you. When is the last time you let those words come from God into your heart? I love you. We'll utter it haphazardly, haphazardly to one another. But will we let God speak them deep into our souls? I love you. Yeah, I know everything about you. I love you. Do you love me? Well, let's deal with all the stuff that you think separates me from you. And let me love you. God's love is what drives him to take care of our sin, my sin. And it comes from the reservoir of our Father in heaven's heart. The heart that he has for his creation, for his people, is far deeper than any ocean that we could ever imagine. Yet so many times, we, tr- we think that the, the, the puddle of our obedience will cleanse the stains of our sins And we let that pursuit keep us from the fact that we are already loved in his sight. What God is saying to the Israelites, what he's saying to us as God's people, as his people, his beloved, is that he has done everything imaginable, everything necessary to unhitch us from the burden of sin. Do you know what the burden of sin is? 
The burden of sin is the reality that we often live in that makes us think that we've got to deal with it on our own. That God is not with us, that we're on our own, and we've got to fight for ourselves. That lifestyle that you and I often live and we go in and out of is called living under a burden. Shackled as slaves to the law. He says, if you remember me, my love, my sacrifice, I will not remember your sins. So my question to you today is this. Where is it that your wagon is still hitched to the burden of sin? Where is it that you are still in bondage and that you have shut the door of God's presence, the reality of his purposes in your life because of something? Where is it that you have took the bait of the enemy that God is not with us? Because Jesus says this in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. He says, come to me. Come to me. Think about the reality of those three words. Come to me. Because God is with us, we can come to him. Because his spirit lives in us, we can, we can pursue him. We can interrupt him. We can call upon his name. We can bug him. The door is open. We have access to our Father in heaven through the work of Jesus. We can come to God. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Everybody who's burdened. And I'll give you the thing that you're actually looking for. The thing that my presence gives. Rest. Rest. You know, that's what eternity is going to be like. When we think of rest, we, we think of, uh, you know, just sitting back watching Netflix all day. Sometimes I can't be rest, you know what I mean? But the rest that he talks about includes joyous work. It, it includes perfect uh, relationship with one another and with Jesus. It includes everything that our lives include, but we don't feel burdened by them. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the invitation of Christmas. I don't know how often you come to church or what you believe about this word Emmanuel, but it's this, I have come to you so that you can keep coming to me. Lastly, talked about how Jesus comes looking for us when we're not looking for him. We've talked about how Jesus extends grace to us through the heart of the Father, the one that loved us and made us. Lastly, I want to talk about this, how grace is extended to the world through our worship of Jesus. The whole plan that God has set up for his name and his fame to go to the ends of the earth is through you to worship him. And in your worship of Jesus, the world is filled with the praise of God, the awareness that God is with us. Because Jesus comes for a hopelessly lost people, there's nothing that brings his name more glory than when we worship him out of that posture. Here's what happens when we get unhitched from the burden of sin. Love and forgiveness can flow not only into our lives, but through our lives. Oftentimes what, what happens is, is whenever we live in this state of unbelief that God isn't actually with us, we restrict the flow of grace. We restrict the flow of forgiveness. And we hold on to it because we are so painfully focused on ourselves. 
Megan and I have been on this journey over the last several months of just trying to get free from hyper-introspection. Anyone else deal with that? Am I the only one? You're just so focused on yourself and your own pursuit of God, your own sin, that you don't even let God forgive you. You don't even let God love you. You don't even let him be with you because you're so focused on yourself. And it seems like a thing that would be helpful, but it's a prison if you've ever been there. More than anything in us, God wants our worship. This is why in Hebrews, the scriptures say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. There's nothing in you that's going to save you unless Jesus is in you. That's what he says. When we're preoccupied with self, we cannot worship. And Jesus has come to free us from the endless cycle of self. And the way that the world gets to know that Emmanuel, God is with us, is through our worship of Jesus. When we are free from self. I love what John the baptizer says in John chapter 3, verse 30. He's kind of getting some notoriety and some fame because he's the, he's the, the, the prophet that breaks the 400 years of silence during the intertestamental period of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He comes on the scene and he starts, he starts preparing the way of the Lord. He starts baptizing with his baptism of repentance. And as everybody wants to exalt him, the camel uh, hair wearing, you know, wild beast of a man that he was, there's, all of the men today are just kind of like, we're just kind of playing house compared to John the Baptist, okay? I mean, he was the real deal. But they're making a big deal about him, and he says something. He says, no, 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 guys, you, you're getting this wrong. He must increase. I must decrease. This is about him. It's not about me. And we get to that place of self far often than we think that we do. But I want to encourage you today, if you're in that place, what would it look like for you to be free and unhitched from the burden of just looking within yourself? Two things I just want to make note of about Isaiah 43 in this is this. Um, we get free to, uh, um, to, to love like we've been loved. Isaiah 43, 4 says, because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. We get to extend that type of grace to the world, that type of love. When you're freed up not to earn love anymore, uh, the Holy Spirit binds our heart to the, the reservoir of the Father's love that existed from eternity past. We get to drill down into that reservoir and extend that love to the world. It's not just about what's happened to us. It's about what flows through us. We get to love like we've been loved. The source of my love is no longer dependent on how well my day is going, how well you have treated me, or how well I have obeyed God. It's like there's a different bank account linked to your card. You know what I mean? That's the love that we get to extend. That's the currency that we get to spend is the Father's love. Now, we only get to do that when we allow the love of God to fill our hearts. Now, secondly, I want to spend a little bit more time on this one. We get to forgive like we've been forgiven. I don't know about you, but the holiday season, there's always some relationships that surface that indicate um, the barometer of how well I'm doing on the forgiveness factor, if you know what I mean. How well am I really forgiving? I, one of our staff members said this week to me in a text, he said, you know, um, you struggle with unforgiveness? And I said, 
yeah, I do. And I know that I struggle with unforgiveness because I, I cast judgment on, on people, whether they know it or not. In my heart, I have these little subtle judgments that I make. And whenever a subtle judgment is made in any situation, it is a sign that forgiveness has not occurred. It's not occurred. So let me, let me dig into this just a little bit. The Holy Spirit binds our hearts to the reservoir of love to show forgiveness that the world has never known before. Now, in Matthew 18, there's this parable that Jesus shares. Peter is, is thinking about forgiveness, and, and I, I really feel like Jesus is like prophetically speaking into Peter's life at this moment, because Peter, he utters out this statement. He's like, Jesus, how often do I got to forgive these guys? I mean, they can't even keep up with me. How often do I forgive them? Seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says, Peter, you have no idea, dude. You have no idea how much I'm going to have to forgive you. Not seven, but 77 times, meaning an infinite amount of forgiveness that Peter and us as the church as Christians are to extend. An infinite amount. That means there is no offense that has occurred in your life if you are a Christian that you have the right and privilege to withhold forgiveness against. And you say, right, Ryan, I told them I forgive you. I mean, the same way that my kids do when they punch each other in the face. Oh, please forgive me. You don't really want to be forgiven right now. You, want, you just punched them in the face. A lot of times we, we think, oh, I, you know, I've asked for forgiveness. No, here's the real test. Do you still have judgment in your heart? Do you still avoid that person? Do you still think differently about them? Forgiveness has not occurred. Jesus says it to us like this in Matthew 18. He tells this story of these two, these two servants that serve this master. And, and the story goes a little bit like this. I'll tell it to you and I'll read the last part. Um, he shares the story of this guy that has a, a very large debt, like several million dollars of debt. And, and the master says, hey, listen, you didn't pay me. You borrowed the money. You didn't, you didn't pay me. And so the master orders that the wife and kids be sold into slavery to pay the debt. He casts judgment because he has the authority to. They have debt. They haven't paid it. Judgment has to be served. Justice has to be served in the situation. He has the right to do it. The man says, but master, master, please, you, I'm gonna, I want to pay you back everything, I'll, I'll, interest, whatever. I'll pay you everything that I owe you. I'll scratch off a million lottery tickets to try to get this money back to you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll work night and day. I'll do whatever it takes. And the master says, because he has pity and mercy on the man, he says, okay, get to work. No, that's not what he says. The master says, I forgive you. Go and live free. Just like that, several million dollars. It's in talents. I didn't do the currency conversion for you, sorry. He says, I forgive you. So that guy gets out, and the first thing he does is he goes to the guy that owes him, let's just say, a few thousand dollars. And he says, dude, you got to pay me back everything right now. I'm going to have you thrown into jail. And so he does that. And then some guys go back and they tell the master what the servant number one that was forgiven all that money did. Uh, and so he shows up and, uh, and, and he says this in, in verse uh, 1831 through 35. I'll read it. When his fellow servants saw that uh, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then uh, the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. You act like you cared. You act like you'd been changed. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Shouldn't you have let that mercy flow through you to someone else? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all of his debt. And then Jesus flips the script on us. It's too bad this can't just be about someone else, huh? So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now the story is straightforward. Now my question as I read it is this. Who did the second servant really owe money to? You know the guy that owed a few thousand dollars to servant number one who was forgiven several million dollars? Who did he really owe money to? He really owed money to the master, didn't he? And what happened was is the master's mercy was not extended to servant number two through servant number one. Jesus says if, if you don't forgive, if you don't let mercy flow through, you don't let forgiveness flow through you from your heart, meaning judgment is gone, you are an open vessel for the Holy Spirit to extend forgiveness, mercy, and grace to. If you don't do that, then you will not be forgiven. Now, I know the scriptures say, you know, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, that he doesn't lose anything that he keeps in John chapter 6. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm trying to get you to ask yourself if you actually have it. And Jesus this confronts me too. Jesus confronts us and he says, have you really forgiven? So as we think about this, I want you to think about the judgments that exist in your heart. Have you been a, a path of God's mercy and forgiveness to your neighbor, to your family, and to your friends? Have you let God's grace flow through your life freely or have you restricted it? Have you said, no, I know that I've been forgiven by God, but you owe me. And I'm going to take every dollar. Because Jesus says we shouldn't feel good about our standing before him if that's the way that we live. Now, how does this hit you today? It's kind of a heavy Christmas ending, isn't it? Where in your life have you restricted the flow of grace to the world? Would, would you be willing to untie yourself from the unforgiveness of judgment? And let Jesus pay it all for you. The invitation is open today. To let Jesus fully forgive you, as Isaiah 43 talks about. To let him be with us. To remember our sins no more when we remember him. To let his life flow through ours. To let Emmanuel's blood flow through our veins. Emmanuel. God is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you uh, that, that there's nothing in my life that keeps you from pursuing me. We thank you that the Father's heart for us is far deeper than we could ever imagine. And we confess that we don't make enough of Jesus. God, would you, would you help New City Church this morning? Would you help me this morning 
grow as a conduit of your love and grace and mercy in your world. Would you help us to see how much you love us, how much you've paid for us, and what you've done to finish the fight so that we can declare it's finished. We are pleasing in your sight. Would you show us that this morning? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.